Let me ask you to take out your Bibles. Let's open up together to Romans chapter 9. To Romans chapter 9. And this morning we come a second time to verses 24 through 29. And so let me just remind you of the issue at hand in this passage. Jesus taught that when he returns... He will gather all the nations to himself. And this includes not only those who are alive on the earth when he returns, but also all of those who have died from times past. You see, there will be a great resurrection. A resurrection both of the godly and of the wicked. And all mankind will stand for the final judgment. And Christ tells us, that he will separate the human race into two categories. There will be some who will be sheep. and There will be some who will be goats. Now, the assumption of many in the first century was that the sheep were mainly Jews. (laughs) The flock of God was a predominantly Jewish flock as they understood it. Yes, there might be the occasional Gentile convert, but God is the God of the Jews, and His promises and His blessings are are for the Jews. And so in their mind, when Christ talked about God having a people called sheep, they assumed it was a Jewish flock. The problem is that all of God's blessings and all of God's promises are connected to a man. A man called the Messiah. A man named Jesus Christ. It is through, as we just confessed, it is through faith in Christ that all of the blessings and the promises of God are received. God has placed His every wonderful blessing into the well of Christ Jesus And it is only as you come to Jesus that you are able to draw up for yourself God's good gifts. So if God's special people, if his sheep are the Jews, why are so many Jews not believing on Christ? Because Christ is where all the blessings are. Christ is where all of the promises become yes and amen. And so Paul is giving us an answer to that question. And we have seen that Paul uses various words in Romans 9 to refer to the true people of God. In Romans 9, he refers to them as vessels of mercy. He calls them children of God. He calls them the offspring of Abraham and Isaac. He says these are those who truly belong to Israel. And Paul made that shocking statement way back up in verse 6 that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, the true Israel, the true sheep, the true children of God are not those with biological connections to Abraham, but rather, as he Paul has explained throughout this chapter, the sheep are those chosen of God, called of God, born of God, and who believe on God through Jesus Christ. Think about what we have learned about how someone is saved. 
Because we find all of those elements of bringing somebody to salvation right here in Romans 9. Just follow with me for a moment. Note this, right? Where does the chain of salvation begin? Well, let's go to to election, right? That God chooses whom he will save. That's verses 9 through 18. Isaac was chosen. Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. God has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. Verse 16. Salvation does not ultimately depend on human will or exertion. Our choices, our actions, but salvation depends on God who shows mercy. But not only do we have election in Romans 9, but we also have effectual calling. In other words, those people whom God has chosen to save, he comes to them with the gospel. Whether it's through a preacher or a friend or a Bible or a Christian song, God brings the gospel to these people and they hear the gospel. And as they hear it, God calls them in a powerful way to himself. He, he calls them in, a, in an irresistible way. Maybe it's the first time they've ever heard the gospel. Maybe it's the 1,343rd time that they've heard the gospel. And yet, that's the time when, by the choice of God, it hits them differently than they've ever heard it before. And they find themselves convicted of their sin, crying out to Christ, compelled to believe on Christ. It's effectual calling. And we see that, uh, let's see, in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. But not only do we have election and then effectual calling in Romans 9, but we also have regeneration, the new birth, right? Um, This is verses 7 through 9. Sarah was a barren woman. No life could come from Sarah. And then God, by his power, created life in her. Isaac was a miracle child. Isaac was a child of supernatural birth. He was what Paul calls a child of promise. And so also, every Christian has been promised to Christ by the Father. And every Christian is a miracle child having a miraculous birth. If you're a Christian in this room, we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. Left to ourselves, we would have never truly believed on God. But then God came to us, and when the gospel came to us, not only did he effectually call us to himself, but he caused us to be born again. We were given new life, spiritual life. What are we as Christians? We are new creations. We are the born again. So there's election in Romans 9. There's effectual calling in Romans 9. There's miracle birth being born again in Romans 9. And then what does all of that lead to? It leads to people believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. Look down at verse 30. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by what? 
faith. And that's where all of this is leading. So here's the issue of Romans 9. Who are the vessels of mercy? Who are the true offspring, the true children of God, the true Israel? Who are the sheep? Who are the chosen, the effectually called, the reborn, the believers? Who are these people? And Paul has given us two answers, both shocking to many in the first century. And let's read his answers again in verses 24 through 29. And to get the context, we need to go back to verse 22. So we're actually going to start reading Romans 9, verse 22. And let's hear Paul's two answers to that question, who are the sheep? Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called... Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So who are the true people of God? Answer one, Gentiles are included in this flock, right? This is where we focused last week. It felt different. It was 3 p.m. rather than 11 a.m., but that's where we were last week, right? Verses 24 through 26. We saw the breadth of God's mercy. That God is calling people from all over the world, from all of these different people groups into his flock. God's grace does not end at the borders of Palestine. God's grace is wide. His mercy is broad. Salvation is for the nations. We saw in verses 24, 25, 26, a call to missions and missionary endeavor. We saw the implication to put an end to racism and ethnic prejudice because people from all over the world are being made brothers and sisters, one family in Jesus Christ. We saw in those verses that there is hope for the despairing soul. There is hope for every person in this room if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last time that we Gentile Christians, Gentile Christians, we are now children of Abraham. And that the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, are now our scriptures. And the precious promises of the Old Testament, we can now bring as our promises. Why? Because Christ is the ultimate Jew. And when we believe on Him, everything that is His becomes ours as we become one with Christ. 
This is why I can read the precious Old Testament promises written to Israel and know that they are for me. Through Jesus, the promises of God become ours, even as Gentiles. That was the first answer. The Gentiles are included. Now this morning, Paul gives a second answer. This is verses 27 through 29. And here's the second answer. Only a remnant of ethnic Jews are included. Only a remnant of ethnic Jews are included. The first answer was shocking to many. What? The Gentiles are included? So many Jews had been raised their whole lives to believe that the Gentiles were Gentile dogs, filthy, unclean. Pagan Gentiles were the enemies of God. One day he would get glory over them through his wrath being poured out upon them. The idea that God would take pagan Gentiles and make them his children was shocking. But now the second answer is equally shocking. I can picture a Jew coming to grips with the first truth. He says, okay, okay, I, I, I get it. So while God's people will be mostly Jews, while it will still be mainly a Jewish flock, he's going to let some Gentiles be a part of his people too. But Paul says, no. It isn't that the people of God are mostly Jews with the occasional Gentile. Just the opposite. In the end, the people of God will be many Gentiles and only a remnant of ethnic Jews. The true Israel is mostly Gentile. The true Israel, those chosen of God, will include only a remnant of ethnic Israelites. Where is Paul getting this? Well, just like he has done throughout this chapter, he uses Old Testament scriptures to make his point. This is not Paul's teaching. This is God's teaching. And he uses, thus saith the Lord. Let me show it to you in the Old Testament to make his point. In fact, I've been thinking about this. I'm picturing the entirety of Romans 9, the argument that Paul is making in Romans 9, as this, as this structure. And the structure is being held up on pillars, right? And each one of those pillars is a different Old Testament text. And he is just putting up pillar after pillar after pillar of Old Testament verses to hold up and support and establish the argument that he's making. So we're going to note some of those pillars again this morning. In verses 27 and 28, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He is quoting Isaiah 10, Verses 22 through 23. And what I want to do is simply give you four observations about these two verses that Paul quotes. Number one, note that Paul speaks of Isaiah crying out. Do you see that in verse 27? Crying out. Paul could have said, Isaiah said this. Or, as we remember that Isaiah said this. But Paul uses a stronger word. A word of intensity. A word of emotion. Isaiah cried out. In other words, don't read these verses in a cold, disconnected way. 
Remember, when Paul quotes these verses, he's quoting them about his own kinsmen. About his own family. He's writing about his own people. When Isaiah was, was writing this and proclaiming this, he was proclaiming it about his own kin, his own family. Paul said at the beginning of this chapter that he wished that he could himself wish to be accursed and cut off from Christ if it would bring his fellow Jews to salvation. There is heartache in these two verses. Heartache on Paul's part. Heartache back when Isaiah first wrote this. This is a painful word for these Jewish men to declare about their own kin. And yet it was a word from God. Isaiah cried out. Number two, second. Note that these verses speak of a remnant saved from judgment. So do you see that? We're we're talking about ethnic Israel. Isaiah refers to them as the sons of Israel, which could just as easily be translated as the children of Israel. How often do you read that in the Old Testament as a reference to Israel, right? The children of Israel. The Old Testament is full of references to national Israel as the children of Israel. And just as God promised, the biological, ethnic children of Israel has become a great multitude. Way back in Exodus, we saw how the children of Israel multiplied greatly. How ethnic Israelites were numbering in the millions. And since that time, their number has continued to multiply. And on the last day, we will find that millions upon millions of people who have walked on planet Earth were physical, biological descendants of Abraham and Jacob. And today we refer to those people as ethnic Jews. But our verses say that God is carrying out a judgment upon those people. We read of the Lord carrying out a sentence. There is a punishment being issued upon these people. And yet, though the people as a whole are being judged, there is a remnant being being spared. A small percentage are being saved from the judgment. Now third, note that when Isaiah wrote this, he was referring most directly to God's judgment coming through the Babylonians. Okay? So what was Isaiah talking about when he first wrote this? Well, here's the context. The Babylonians are coming. And the people of Judah are going to be destroyed. And only a remnant will be spared. Remember that man called Nebuchadnezzar? Fun name to say, right? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? We have Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Daniel? Right? He was in that first wave of exiles. He's interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that great golden image of Nebuchadnezzar that the people were to bow down to and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow down to that image of Nebuchadnezzar. And for that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar boasted about his kingdom. This kingdom that I have built with my own hands. And God therefore judged him by causing him to lose his mind for a while. He was eating grass like an animal. And then God brought him back to his senses. 
That's who Isaiah is talking about here. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar was coming against Jerusalem and against Judah with his mighty armies. And they brought destruction to Judah. The siege of Jerusalem lasted years. People were starving to death within the walls of that city as the armies of Babylon stood outside. This is that terrible time in which Jeremiah talked about mothers cooking and eating their own children to survive. When the Babylonians finally breached the city of Jerusalem, so many people had died and those that were still living were so weak that it wasn't even a fight. The, the temple was destroyed. Solomon's temple, not one stone left atop another. And though Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument that God used, it was God who was bringing this judgment. His own people had rejected him and rebelled against him. They had turned from him. And according to Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets, this was God carrying his sentence out against his own people. And yet, there was a remnant. There was a remnant who would survive the Babylonian attack. A remnant who would survive the Babylonian captivity. There were some who managed to remain in Israel even during the time of the Babylonian captivity. There were many others who were carried off to Babylon, but they, were, they survived there. And years later, they were able to return to Israel. These were the blessed ones. These were the ones spared the full force of the judgment of God. And so that was what Isaiah had most directly in view. But then fourth, note that there is something greater than the Babylonian judgment in view. And I think Paul gets this first from the fact that almost every Old Testament prophecy has a double fulfillment. But I think he especially gets it from the word earth. Does everybody see that word earth there? Right? The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. It could also be translated land. Okay? But Paul seems to recognize that Old Testament, prophe Old Testament prophecy has multiple fulfillments. That the first fulfillment was the Babylonians coming as a judgment of God upon Israel. But that's the smaller judgment. Old Testament prophecy tends to have multiple fulfillments, and the first one's usually the smaller fulfillment. It's the second one that's the bigger, ultimate fulfillment. And Paul sees in Isaiah's words that there is a day when God is going to bring a judgment on the earth that is greater than anything the Babylonians could bring. Some see in these words a reference to 70 A.D., the day when the Roman armies would come into Jerusalem and destroy it again. That's going to happen just a few years after Paul writes this. The temple is going to be left in utter ruins again. And this time it won't be rebuilt. But certainly Paul also has in mind here the day of ultimate judgment. The last day. And on that day when all people will be judged. Ethnic Jews will be judged as well. And they will be held to a higher standard than most. Because they had the prophets. And they had the scriptures. And they had the law. 
And yet, as we sang in the words of In Christ Alone while ago, when the Messiah came to his own people, they rejected him and they mocked him. They tortured him. They crucified him. The Jews, by and large, have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the judgment of God. That after centuries of disobedience, after centuries of unfaithfulness, God gave Israel over to the hardness of their heart. God left Israel in their unbelief. And only a small remnant of the Jews have been spared. There will be only a small number of Jews found believing on the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. Now, when I use the word small, I'm speaking in relative terms. <laughs> I mean, compared to the total number of ethnic Jews, there will be a remnant. Compared to the number of Gentiles among God's people, the number will seem small. Now, notice again verse 29. Verse 29, because Paul quotes from Isaiah again. And this time he quotes Isaiah 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So think about that. How great was the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember Abraham interceding with God for Sodom? God, if, there's just, if you can find just ten righteous people in that city. Right? And he's not even talking there about perfect righteousness. Right? He's just talking about ten God-fearing people. God, if you can just, just ten God-fearing people in Sodom, will you spare it? And God said, yes, I will. And there weren't even ten to be found. And when God finished with Sodom and Gomorrah, it was left a wasteland. We have ancient records that compare Sodom and Gomorrah before they were destroyed to the Garden of Eden. Sodom and Gomorrah were beautiful places to live. They were wonderful places to live. Sodom, <coughs> excuse me, when Lot, right, Abraham gave Lot first choice of lands to take, and Lot said, I want the best land, where did he go? He went to Sodom. He went the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a fruitful place. It was a prosperous place. And then God's judgment came. And the judgment was so utter and complete that the land was left as it is, is still today. Filled with sulfur, filled with salt. It's where the Dead Sea is today. Things can't grow there. Isaiah declared, that if God had not left a remnant, if God had not left offspring among the people of Israel, Israel too would have become like Sodom. That they would have been completely wiped out by the Babylonians. And Paul saying there is a deeper fulfillment, a more ultimate fulfillment, that if God had not mercifully chosen to spare some ethnic Israelites and to bring them to faith in Christ, the entire people would have been left in darkness and brought to eternal destruction. Remember what Jesus said to the Jewish cities in which he preached. This is Matthew 11. Listen to Jesus speak in these verses then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! 
Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He's saying to these Jewish cities, if I had gone to these Gentile cities and done the things there that I've done here, they would have believed and repented. You have not. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Sodom's sins were great. But to have had all the privileges that the Jews had and then to reject the very Son of God in their midst, this was greater evil still. Paul's first answer, the Gentiles are included, speaks to the breadth of God's mercy. The second answer, that a remnant of ethnic Jews are included, speaks to the depth of God's mercy. For it seems that no people will stand guiltier before God on the last day than the people of Israel. And yet God is willing to save some of them. Don't forget, there were some people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, mocking Christ as he's suffering on the cross, who on the day of Pentecost repented and were saved. People who were active participants in the killing of the Son of God. What have you in this room done that is more evil than that? Can you think of a sin graver than that? And yet on the day of Pentecost, some of those very people who participated in the death of Jesus were saved by Jesus and shown mercy. Paul stands before us as an example of the remnant. He's a trophy of God's grace. The, the Christian hunter, the Christian killer, the one standing and nodding in approval as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being stoned to death. And yet here is Paul now. He calls himself the chief of sinners coming from that nation which has more to answer to before God than any other. And yet God's mercy extended to him. And today, through groups that are working to bring the gospel to Jewish people, God is still saving some ethnic Jews. Is it a remnant? Yes. But we're still talking about thousands upon thousands, perhaps millions of people throughout history who have Abraham's blood in their veins and faith in Jesus Christ in their hearts. So yes, there's a wideness to God's mercy. There is also a great depth to the mercy of God. We should not be shocked that only some Jews are saved. We should be shocked that any are saved. We should not be shocked that God only saves some Gentiles. We should be shocked that God saves any of us. And if we are in Christ, we should be humbled and we should be grateful and we should have endless praises to God for His mercy. So, I want to end with some implications. 
And here's what I want to talk about. What are the implications for how we are to view modern Israel today? I'll be brief, but I want to make five statements about how this passage affects how we are to view modern Israel today. Number one, let's be crystal clear about number one. Anti-Semitism has no place in the Christian life. Yes, Israel is under a special judgment of God because of their unbelief, because of their rejection of Jesus. But that does not mean that we are to look upon the Jewish people with any sort of prejudice or any sort of hostility. Because apart from the grace of God, none of us would come to Christ. And we all stand guilty before God. We're all sinners. We have nothing to boast about as Gentiles. The truth is, anti-Semitism, a prejudiced hatred of the Jewish people, has been a blight on the history of Christianity. Over 2,000 years, there have been times when Christians treated Jews cruelly and harshly, and they often claimed Romans 9 and the judgment of God upon Israel as rationale and excuse for them treating Israel harshly. We have no right to think or act in that way. The gospel is for the Jews first, then the Gentiles. We are to view the Jewish people with love and compassion and humility, just as we ought to view everyone else. Not this past week, week before, one of the Republican presidential candidates made a remark that some took to be a derogatory remark against Jewish people. Now, I don't know if that candidate meant it that way, but I do know that derogatory remarks about Jewish people were fairly common in past decades. And so let's be clear. It is not right to refer to Jews or anyone else in an insulting way. It is not right to tell jokes that impugn or mock the Jewish people. Let no trace of anti-Semitism be named among us here. Are we clear? We good on that? Okay. Number two. We are wrong to insist that modern Israel has God's special favor and blessings. We are wrong to insist that modern Israel has God's special favor and blessings. There is no way you can get from the teaching of Romans 9 to saying, as the dispensational view does, that somehow modern Israel has the special favor of God. Modern Israel is not the same as ancient Israel. And the New Testament is clear today that Israel is under a judgment of God because of unbelief and disobedience. Those who speak as if America must always side with modern Israel in order to have God's favor don't understand the position that modern Israel is in before God. The true Israel on earth today is the flock. All those who believe on Jesus Christ, a remnant of ethnic Jews, a lot of Gentiles. If America wants to be blessed, she needs to protect the freedoms and the rights of the true Israel which is also called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, as regards the 
continual Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Our chief concern must be justice, righteousness, and fairness. It is not wrong to be pro-Israel if you are convinced that justice, fairness, and righteousness are on the side of Israel. It is not wrong to be pro-Palestinian if you believe that justice, fairness, and righteousness lead in that direction. Whether you favor a two-state solution or lean some other way, our convictions about this constant political issue must be based on God's principles. But we cannot show partiality. And we cannot just assume that we must always side with Israel because of who they were in ancient days. Fourth, we should share the gospel with Jews just like we would any other people. The Jews must be included among the nations we are seeking to reach. In fact, in every town, Paul would go preach the gospel in the synagogue first. He would preach the gospel to Jews first. And then after he had been thrown out, then after he was rejected, he would preach to the Gentiles. For Paul... Romans 9 was a reality that he lived over and over again. He would go to a new city. He would preach to his own kin. They would reject him. They would threaten him. They would mock him. Sometimes they would imprison him. Sometimes they would stone him. And then he would go to the Gentiles in that city and find believers. In the book of Acts, we find that sometimes when Paul was in a city where many Gentiles were believing, the Jews from another town would come against him just for the purpose of attacking him and silencing him. Paul wore on his own body the scars of his own people rejecting Jesus. And yet in every city, he would still always go to the Jews first. Despite what the Jews did in the last town. He would go to them first and the next. So let us never neglect taking the gospel to the Jewish people. Last, number five. We should share in Paul's brokenheartedness about his people because it was through the Jewish people that God brought to us Christ and salvation. We, like Isaiah and like Paul, should mourn the hard-heartedness of Israel. We should grieve that a people with such blessings has given the gospel to the nations but rejected that same gospel themselves. And then in our brokenheartedness, we should be careful that we never do the same thing. What a tragedy that our own country has had so many blessings and so many privileges from God and now we're turning away from God. What a tragedy that for so long the United States has been the hub of missionary endeavor. The United States sending out thousands upon thousands of missionaries to the nations and yet we as a land are now quickly rejecting the very gospel that we've been sending out elsewhere. And on a more personal level, let us be careful that those of us who have grown up in Christian families, those of us who have grown up in church, Let us not reject the great gift that has been proclaimed to us a thousand times. 
May there not be a person in this room who has had the privilege of hearing the good news of Jesus again and again, and yet they continued to reject it. Instead, let us marvel at the breadth and the depth of God's grace. And let us be amazed that forgiveness is available even for every single one of us. Let us run to Christ. Let us cling to Christ and find all that we need in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.